Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and we'll essentially be picking up exactly where we left off last week. But before we start in Genesis 3, let me just read from Revelation 12, 9. You just listen to this. be a familiar verse for many, I think. Revelation 12, 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So you have to wait to the very end of the story. I mean, we know, but it's where we're specifically told that the serpent in the garden is, in fact, Satan. He's the devil. And so this morning what we're looking at is sin starts with Satan. Okay, sin starts with Satan. Um, now, let me read a fairly famous quote by C.S. Lewis that probably many of you are familiar with as well. This comes from the book The Screwtape Letters. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, speaking of the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or magician with the same delight. And you understand what he's saying there, right? When you think about what the Bible has to say about Satan and how it applies in our day-to-day life. There's a ditch on both sides of the road. You can obsess about it and think about it all the time, uh, and that's a problem. But that's probably not the ditch that most of us are living in, in upper-middle-class suburbia in America. We tend to fall much more in the other ditch of, ah, I know the Bible says something about Satan, but should we really think about it that much? And yet, the Bible makes it very clear that where this whole problem of sin started, and what we're trying to look at this quarter is, how do we get down to the deepest root of our sin, so we can attack it there? The deepest root of our sin started with a satanic temptation and attack. Now, before we go any further, let me just say this. Nothing that we are trying to say this morning is trying to uh, set us up to play the blame game, so that we can say, well, it's really not my fault, right? The devil made me do it, so I'm off the hook, right? And, and that, let's just be honest, that temptation at times is in our hearts. But that's not where we're going, okay? But we do want to understand how we have found ourselves in this condition. And yes, I know that now, today, when we face temptation, sometimes it can come from within our own sinful uh, nature. If you're not a Christian, and even if you are a Christian, we still have indwelling sin living inside of us, right? Paul talks about that very clearly in Romans chapter 7 and other places. And then we also, we're we're in a sin-saturated culture. I mean, there's plenty of temptation out there. Here's the point that I'm trying to make this morning. Adam and Eve had no indwelling sin. They were innocent. Adam and Eve did not live in a sinful culture. They lived in paradise in the garden. And yet, even there, they fell. They gave in in a pretty terrible way. And if it could happen to them when they really only had one enemy, how much more frequently and readily are we going to fall when we actually have three enemies? Some people you know, refer to it as the evil trinity, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So um, we're going to look at Satan coming in. And part of what we said last week, let me just pause and do this. I do this every once in a while, not all the time, so don't worry. Um, and I mainly do this just to see if... if Anybody remembered anything? But if you were here last week, so about half of you are off the hook, okay? Uh, If you were here last week, do you remember anything what we said last week? Last week we talked about what does true holiness consist of? And we said it really consists of three things. Does anybody remember? Trust. Okay, starts with trust. Very good. Obey. Obey. 
and then praising, enjoying, thanking Him, okay? So the deepest root of holiness is faith, trust in God. Romans 14, 23 says anything that's not from faith is sin. It's almost a definition of sin when you're not trusting God. So if the deepest root of holiness is faith and trust, then the deepest root of sin is doubt and unbelief. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Satan comes in, and he's really tempting Adam and Eve to doubt God in three different ways. Doubt his word, doubt his wrath, and doubt his ways. And I'll explain more about what all that means as we get there. So let's just uh, start in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Okay. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees in the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. So Satan comes in, okay, and it says that he's crafty. He was more crafty than anyone else in the garden. And the word crafty there could also be translated shrewd. You think about, to be shrewd is a good thing. Even in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus said he commanded his people, us, to be shrewd as serpents. In some sense, probably alluding to this. Shrewd is about wisdom. It's about being sly. It's about being cunning. But you can use shrewdness, craftiness, in the service of God and his ways, or you can use it in satanic ways and self-centered ways. And that's certainly what Satan does here. Now, let's go a little deeper. What exactly does it mean that Satan was shrewd so much of it has to do with he's subtle, his seeming smallness. And here's what I mean. He did not come at Adam and Eve with thunder and lightning, fear and terror. Right? He didn't come in trying to make himself look powerful and, and convince them or overwhelm them. Nor did he come in with a direct attack. Hey, God's bad. You should disobey him. My way will be better. It's more of a very subtle glancing blow. I mean, technically, with this first temptation... He doesn't even tell a lie. He really just asks a question. I mean, you, you could almost translate it in modern translation kind of like this. Like Satan shows up and says, seriously? Is what I heard true? God, God's going to make you all work in his garden, but he doesn't let you eat any of the fruit of your labor? It's all, he's, he's feigning, acting as though he's ignorant. I heard something, but I'm not sure. Can you clarify it for me? He's trying to knock them off balance. There's a great Old Testament commentator, a guy named Derek Kidner, and he says this, It smuggles in the assumption that God's word is subject to our judgment. And that's where we start to get into trouble, right? Let me kind of pause and make a side note here. A lot of y'all probably heard this before. But listen, there is obviously a humble and right way to read the Bible, to wrestle with it, to say, I don't understand. I want to understand it better. I'm trying to understand it, Father. Please help me. But I don't get it. Maybe the classic biblical example would be Luke uh, 1, Mary, when the angel Gabriel comes to her and says, you're going to be with child, right? And she essentially says, how can this be? Because I'm a virgin. I don't know much, but I, but I do know some basics here. But there's humility. There's not arrogance. There's just, I, I don't get it. That's, that's a good way to wrestle the Bible. In the very same chapter, you have Zacharias when the angel comes to him and says, your wife's going to be pregnant, and he kind of responds with a little bit more arrogance. How can I be certain? Are you sure? How can I be sure? And he says, I'll tell you how I'm sure. I'm going to make you not be able to talk for nine months. How do you like me now? Okay. So there's an arrogant way to question the Scripture, and there's a humble way. And it's okay to question it in a humble way. It's not okay to question it in an arrogant way. And certainly, that's what Satan was doing. And he was trying to draw Eve into that web. But 
Let's give Eve her due. She responds pretty well. No, no, that's not right. We, we are allowed to eat from basically every tree in the garden except for this one. Remember, I mean, we said last week, and I, this is a quote from somebody I can't remember, but our God is the God of a thousand yeses before he's the God of one prohibition. So she's going back. But we've got to give Satan his due as well. He doesn't give up. And this is where we should be reminded and be very sober-minded. Our enemy is a persevering enemy. Do you remember in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus was tempting, I mean when Jesus was being tempted by Satan, three different temptations, and the very last verse of that little section, Luke chapter 4 verse 13, it says Satan left, but he left for what? Anybody remember? A more opportune time. Listen, he left, but he was coming back. He didn't give up. He doesn't give up, right? His reign will continue to some degree until what we read in the book of Revelation when the very end comes. He doesn't give up. He perseveres. And so we need to have our guard up. Because just one, I mean, don't worry, I'm not going to ask for testimony time. But have any of you have ever been in a situation where you're tempted to some specific sin and you feel like you made a stand, you resisted, you did very well. And maybe you're even kind of proud of yourself, patting yourself on the back. And within an hour, you had given in to that very same temptation. Or the next day, or the next week, or the next month, right? Okay. Satan doesn't give up, and we can't either. So, the second thing is, doubt God's wrath. Doubt God's wrath. Okay. So, here comes the second one. Look at verse 4. The serpent said to the woman... You surely will not die. Again, I already said, in the first temptation, Satan didn't necessarily lie. Now he gets a lot closer to a lie. But even this is a little bit of a half-truth, which we'll come back to this later on in the quarter. But the most effective lies are the lies that are mixed with the most truth, right? Because they then become the most plausible. We don't know exactly what Satan is saying here. It may be, you're not really going to die. God's going to have mercy on you. Don't worry about it. Uh, you, you, you won't die instantly. You won't fully die. And let's just, again, give the devil his due. There was some truth in that statement, was there not? They did not instantly physically die. Pa- Listen, part of what Satan loves to do, guys, is muddy the waters. I don't want to get off on this, but probably most of us are familiar. There's this huge debate in the PCA right now coming up at the General Assembly in a couple of weeks about, you know, how do you describe the nature of homosexual sin and temptation? And, and the more you get into it, the more confusing it gets at times. And it almost seems as though perhaps some people are intentionally trying to be confusing. You ever been having a debate with somebody like that? And it seems like they're trying to intentionally muddy the waters and stir it up so that you can't even have a clear debate. It goes all the way back to the garden. It's one of his tactics, and it's very effective. Okay? What is he saying here? Doubt God's power. Don't, don't take him too seriously. Don't worry about the consequences. It's not going to be that bad. You can probably get away with it. It'll probably be worth it. Okay? It's directed at God's seriousness. Okay, maybe he did say that, but did he really mean it? He's trying to tone down the weight of God's word. Now just pause for a second. These first two temptations, okay? Doubt God's word. Doubt what he said. Can't we see how that is very prevalent today in the church and in the culture? 
Seriously, the Bible has all these miracles, the Red Sea, the resurrection, Jonah and the whale. I, I don't know if that can. I mean, I'm sure there's some good stuff in the Bible, but can we really believe it all? We can't really take it all literally, can we? Okay. Hell, man, I'm a Bible-believing. Listen, I know people like this, and I'm sure you do, that in so many ways seem to be legitimate, committed Christians. And they're like, yeah, eternal damnation for anyone that doesn't have faith in Christ? That just seems too much, too hard. How could a loving God ever do that? And he created them with that intention. And maybe annihilation. Maybe that's a little bit nicer. Right? I mean, this kind of stuff is still going on thousands of years later. Satan has been very effective in his doubts. But he doesn't stop there. It's almost like he, I think he feels that he has the advantage over Eve. She's starting to wonder. She's starting to waver a little bit. So he goes in for the kill. Doubt God's ways. And really what I mean here is doubt God's love. Doubt God's goodness. Doubt his character. Doubt his intention. Look at verse 5. This is the temptation that really gets her. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, knowing everything, experiencing everything. You'll be more like God. There's probably an implication you'll be more like me. I have more wisdom than you guys. I'm down here having to explain stuff to you. Listen, Derek Kidner again, he said, It is a lie big enough to reinterpret life and dynamic enough to redirect the flow of affection and ambition. I mean, so much of what we tried to talk about last week from Genesis chapter 2 is that the Bible presents God as a loving daddy who likes his kids and he's generous and he's lavish and he enjoys giving abundant gifts to his kids. And that's the way the whole Bible presents God. And what Satan says is, that's not true. He's not a loving daddy. He's a tyrant. He's a, he's a landowner that demands that you make more bricks with less straw. He makes you work on his land, and he doesn't pay you well enough. You're not getting a good deal down here. You're getting a raw deal. You can't trust his character. He's really a competitor. And if you don't take things, here's the implication, he doesn't say it. If you don't take things into your own hands, you're going to have a miserable life. So what is Satan doing? He is trying to change our view of God. And really change our view of ourselves, right? Something in you is lacking. You're not enough like God. I mean, they had been made in God's image. And he says, no, nah, you're not enough like God. You need to be more like God. You need more power. You need more knowledge. You need more wisdom. You're lacking. I have a counselor friend. He's a PCA elder, but he's a full-time counselor. And part of what he says, he says, what I go back to over and over and over again with people I'm counseling is, it's almost like you have these glasses that you wear. And one lens is how you think about God, your view of God. And the other lens is how you think about yourself. And to the degree that you're thinking about God and yourself in the right way, you'll understand life right. You'll have a proper worldview, and then you'll make wise decisions. To the degree you have a warped view of God and a warped view of humanity and yourself specifically, you'll have a bad worldview. You'll make bad decisions. Pretty good. Again, I think it goes right back to what we're learning here in Genesis chapter 3. Now, think about how prevalent this one is, right? How many people in our culture today are saying, I, I, I do know there's a God, but it just doesn't seem like he's run the world very well. I mean, I've got all these sexual desires and feelings inside of myself. And God's saying, the only way I can express any of this is I have to be a heterosexual in a heterosexual marriage for life. One man, one woman, monogamous. 
That sounds crazy. I mean, I want to pursue it in a homosexual way. Or I'd like to pursue it in a serial heterosexual way without the bounds of marriage. And why would God create me with all these feelings and then say I can't express them? He's not a good God. He's not a trustworthy God. I can't honor Him. i got to go do whatever I want to. Listen, doubt God's words, doubt God's wrath, doubt God's ways. Or you could say it this way, doubt God's truth, doubt God's power, and doubt God's love. Doubt God's goodness. Again, some of you weren't here last week, but one of the things that we pointed out last week when you go through Genesis 2 is it keeps referring to God as the Lord God. The Lord God, Yahweh God, which is His covenant name. That He's a relational God, that He draws near to people, that He makes covenant and He keeps covenant. Do you notice in chapter 3, right, it starts out referring to Him as the Lord God who made everything, but then when Satan is talking about God, he never refers to Him as the Lord God. He's just God. Yeah, he's the big man in the sky. Technically, I guess he's in charge. He created everything. He has all the power. But he's not relational. He's not warm. He's not friendly. He's not trustworthy. He's not good. You can't rest in him. You can't enjoy him. You shouldn't thank him. You shouldn't praise him. Now, did he say any of that? He didn't say any of that. But it was the subtle implication. And it got into Adam and Eve's heart. I mean, Sinclair Ferguson has a great uh, line where he says, this lie has entered the human bloodstream. And to some degree, we're all still wrestling with it. Okay. Now, um, here's another way to think about Satan's logic. Is it really sinful? Is it really wrong? Well, yes, it is. Okay, well, is it really that bad? Is it really that dangerous? Is it really going to cost you that much? And while you're pondering that, he says, it'll be worth it. Doesn't imagine how much it's going to cost you. It'll be worth it. Go for it. So look what happens. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and she ate and she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Now this is very important for us to notice. Go back to Genesis chapter 2 verse 9 when God is first making everything and it's still innocent and perfect. Out of the ground the Lord God calls to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight. Okay, so just pleasing. You might even want to underline that word. Okay, And then go back to verse uh, chapter 3, verse 6, and it says that it was delight to the eyes. Okay, And the tree was desirable to make one wise, especially that word desirable. And we won't take time to do it, but if you flipped over to Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, the Ten Commandments, where it says do not covet. The word for desirable, delightful, and then coveting, it's all the same root word. Again, God made a world filled with pleasure. It's good to have things in life that are enjoyable. But so much of Satan's appeal and temptation to us is he appeals to good desires, right desires, and there are legitimate ways in God's world and God's timing and ways to fulfill them, but Satan's appeal is, no, 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 satisfy them in a different way, in a better way, and oftentimes that's how we get into sin. And that's why it seems so logical and rational to us. I have these appetites, I have these desires, I have these feelings. And Satan's presenting a way to satisfy it, but he presents the wrong way. And that's what happens with Adam and Eve. Okay. Here's a commentator. He says, the essence of covetousness is I need something I do not now have in order to be happy. Now, 
we're all good. Sunday morning, show up for Sunday school Christians, even in the summer, right? Everybody else is traveling. Here we are. We know the right Sunday school answer, right? But deep in our heart, are we not often tempted with that exact same lie? There's something right now that if I could have this thing, I would be happier. Right? This much more money. This much more prestige in my job. This much more harmony in my marriage. And then I could really be happy. That is the root of the lie, guys. God is not giving you the best stuff right now. Now just think about how the logic works. It starts with doubt rather than trust. It leads to pride. And then the pride leads to coveting. And what it really leads to is the orphan mentality, the scarcity mentality. If God's not going to take care of me, if God's not going to provide for me in the best ways, then who will provide for me? And what's the most logical answer? Me. Me. I've got to look out for number one. Okay? Listen to this quote. It's a little bit of a long one, but it's a really good one. I, I read part of it last week, okay? This is from Tim Keller. Listen to this. All sin against God is grounded in a refusal to believe that God is more dedicated to our good and more aware of what that is than we are. We distrust God because we assume He is not really for us. That if we give complete control... We will be miserable. If I obey God, I'll miss out. I need to be happy. That's the justification. Listen to this. If you miss everything else, get this. Sin always begins with the character assassination of God. We believe that God has put us in a world of delights, but has determined that He will not give them to us if we obey Him. This delusion has sunk deep into every human heart. One of the main reasons that we trust God too little is because we trust our own wisdom too much. This is really the most fundamental temptation that has ever been in the world and the original sin. Specific details may vary, but the deep heart song of I have to look out for myself is always there. Is it not? Okay, now, I started this because the Bible started this saying Satan is crafty, he's subtle. And here's one of the ways that I think he subtly pursues us in the church is that we tend to be minor league experts at seeing how the world culture around us is doing this. But we get a little bit more cloudy when it comes to, how's he doing it to you? How's he doing it to me? The committed Christians. Right? I'm thinking of one young lady, member of this church, seemingly very committed Christian. Right? But she's too hard on herself. I mean, the tiniest little sin, she can be so harsh and extreme on herself, and it even leads her to doubting her salvation. And there's a sense in which the, the basic verses of, listen, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, it's like, essentially what she's saying without saying is, well, did God really say? Did God really mean? Does it really apply to me? I have another friend, officer in a PCA church, wanted to go to lunch fairly recently. He said, let me just tell you where I'm at, and then you can ask me any questions you want. I said, okay. He said, I want to divorce my wife. I know I don't have biblical grounds. I don't care. I'm miserable. I'm leaving. I appreciate his honesty. But he's saying, I know what God says. I know this is wrong. I don't care. I'll risk it. Whatever punishment or consequences there might be, it can't be worse than what I'm dealing with now. 
Logically, I understand what he's dealing with, right? But I'm like, brother, you got to trust the word of God more than you trust your own experience. Or again, the Christian who's in a good, okay marriage, but it's like, I just feel like there's so much more fun and excitement out there to be had. What about just a little lust? I'm not going to have a full-blown affair. Can't I just get away with it? <coughs> if God really loved me, this would be okay. It'll be more fun. It'll be more joy. It can't be that bad. My, my plea for all of us, myself included, is this, guys, that we would spend some time this week not getting caught up in how is Satan deceiving the whole culture. It's obvious. It's too easy. Just turn on the news and watch for five minutes and you'll have ten examples, right? We, we need to be better experts on how is Satan stalking me? How is he crafty in my life? How is he lying to me? How is he deceiving me in very subtle and small ways? I'll give you one more example. I had a guy that had become a Christian at Sanford, was in a discipleship group of mine, and was really seemed to be growing like a weed, and uh, been really involved in campus outreach for a couple of years. And, you know, we do all these different summer missions trips and things like that, and came time. And he really was wanting to go on one of these overseas missions trips and kind of expected that he would be invited to be on one because he'd been doing this for multiple years. And he didn't. He got invited to do something more of a leadership opportunity in America. And he was upset about it. So he's meeting with me. And he was venting, right? That's the, the, the Christian words you put on it. Complaining. He was kind of mad. He was kind of frustrated. And he was handling it pretty well, but I'm listening to it. But as I'm listening to him, here, here's what I'm realizing. What he was essentially saying is, I got a raw deal from God. I've been doing everything I thought I was supposed to do. I really wanted to do this, and I didn't get it. This is not fair. I'm getting a raw deal. He didn't quite say it that way, but he came really close. There are Christian ways that we do all these things. That's what we need to see. That's what we need to repent of. Now, praise the Lord, it doesn't end here, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but if we stopped right here, it's pretty depressing. Okay? But, but I am trying to sober us up. And guys, really, when I try, I'm trying to sober us up. If nothing else, I'm trying to sober myself up. That even the little tiny, white-collared, domesticated sins in my life, at root what they are, they're the character assassination of God. Let that stick with us this next week. There is no, you know, Matthew Henry, I think I quoted this last week, there is no such thing as a little sin because there's no such thing as a little God to sin against. Our sins are personal. They grieve the heart of a good father who has spent all of eternity just lavishing love on us. And then we're like a little petulant child that says, it's not enough, I have to have more. But, skip down to verse 15. Because God the Father does come. In mercy, He comes. More in mercy than in wrath. Yes, there's wrath, but there's more mercy. <coughs> Satan gets the wrath. But before he even gets to dealing with consequences for Adam and Eve... In the curse on Satan, there's a promise for mankind. Look at verse 15. And I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Let's just think about this for just a second. What he's saying is this. Adam and Eve aren't going to die physically today. They're going to stay alive. They're going to have babies. And if you track it down far enough through their lineage, there will come a second Adam one day. And Satan, you're going to attack him. You're going to do your darndest. Try to lie to him. Try to deceive him. But he's going to crush you. 
He is going to say no to every single one of your lies, every single one of your deceptions. He's going to destroy you. You're going to be finished. See, the essence of our sin, guys, is in Adam. In paradise, we said we don't have enough. I got to grasp after more. I got to grasp after more godlike wisdom or privileges or something. But the reverse of that is the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, was in heaven. And although he was totally equal with the Father, he said, I won't grasp onto my privilege. I won't grasp onto my rights. I'll lay it down in love. And I'll go down there into the hell and chaos of earth and I'll save them. I'll suffer the wrath that they deserve. I'll take the wounds they deserve so they can be free. Last thought. At some level, guys, the essence of our sin is we look to ourselves to fix a problem that often is not even a real problem. And in doing so, we ruin at least our lives. Adam and Eve ruined the whole universe. Our salvation is when we look to the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone, not to ourselves, to come and fix our real problem, our deepest problem, and we let Him do it. And so I hope that all of us can think about Christ as the second Adam. Yes, think about the first Adam, the first Eve, and how in Adam and Eve, there's a mirror of ourself, is there not? And learn how we're doing the same thing so that we can repent better, so that we can fight sin better, so we can hate it more, so we can see the stupidity of it. But listen, if you stop there, you're just going to be a depressed, miserable Christian. And you won't really make any progress. Remember, because what we said, the essence of holiness is trust, obey, and enjoy. There's got to be delight. There's got to be joy. And where does that joy come? From looking to the cross and seeing Christ trusting, obeying, enjoying in our place. Seeing His faithfulness. And it's a reminder, God's truth is real. He kept His promise. God's power is real. Satan is more powerful than us. God's more powerful than him. And God's love is real. So real, He sacrificed His Son. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so unworthy. We we are terribly unworthy of Your love. Uh, I am often amazed that You chose to save a sinner like me and you know all the sin that I was going to commit after I was saved how unappreciative how ungrateful how unthankful how rebellious we would continue to be and yet your mercy and your love is so great I pray that all of us would be melted by that we'd be molded by that we would think more deeply on your goodness on your wisdom And we'd be sanctified, we'd be changed, we'd be grown up. Thank you, Christ, for loving us, for pursuing us. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org. 